Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature the legendary writer Stephen King, who appeared at the Newmark Theater for a literary arts special event in 2006. King first published in 1967 and went on to write some of the most iconic pop culture classics of the last half century, many of which were made into Hollywood films, including The Shining, Misery, and The Green Mile. He wrote over 75 books of fiction and nonfiction, not to mention countless screenplays. His work is difficult to define, a mixture of psychological horror, fantasy, realism, and occasional whimsical and or satirical humor. He was certainly one of the best-selling authors of the second half of the 20th century. In this talk, King regales the audience with stories, real and imagined, with his signature mastery of plot, suspense, and hilarious punchlines that define his work. He ranges from his early days working at an industrial laundry facility where he made $1.60 an hour to how the plots of some of his most famous novels were constructed. Throughout, you can hear the tension between King's pop culture credentials and the judgment of literary establishment between King's working class roots and so-called high culture. When he joined us in 2006, he had just published Lisey's Story and both talks about writing it and reads a few pages from the book. Throughout, King is self-deprecating, hilarious, and also deadly serious about craft. Here's King. Thank you. Thank you very much. One of the things that scares me is big crowds, but I'll do the best that I can. And you know, when I start one of these things, I always like to start with a public service announcement. I don't want to scare anybody. Yeah. Actually, I do. I always do, but no, I mean, seriously, uh, we're all here together now, and uh, you're finally out of the rain, and uh, those lights, and people all around and everything, but some of you came alone. <laughs> in your cars. And uh, there's a survey, an, an insurance, car insurance survey on the net that says, uh, reliably, statistically, one person in 50 forgets to lock their car at night. And I don't want to suggest that at this moment a crazy person <laughs> is getting into your car. But it's possible. <laughs> and he could have a knife. <laughs> it is possible. And uh, 
the thing is, I would not want you to be halfway home in the dark <laughs> where no one can hear you scream <laughs> and uh, look in your rear view mirror and instead of seeing lights behind you, see a face that that wouldn't be good. <clears throat> so check your, your car and while you're at it, you could check your trunk. It doesn't hurt to be safe. <laughs> and the same survey says that one person in 200 forgets to lock their house. <laughs> so I don't want to suggest that after you're home and after you get undressed, <laughs> you're naked and defenseless. Someone in the shower with a, with a sharp knife, but it's possible. Well, Elizabeth mentioned uh, the rock bottom remainders and gave me a chill because we've actually got to play a couple of times next year. And uh, <laughs> that's funny. Actually, we're not that bad. That's the, the dirty little secret that the remainders keep. Um, Dave Barry is a, is a master when it comes to promotion. We did this thing at uh, Anaheim in 1992, and we just had such a good time that we decided we had to embarrass ourselves some more. So we did a, a bus tour and everywhere we went, we would go on the radio and Dave would tell the world about how bad we were. He'd say we, needed, we had roadies with us to move our fingers. Uh, when in fact, uh, a lot of the people in that band are professional musicians. That's how they earned their daily bread before they were writers. But really, Rinley Pearson, who is a, a thriller writer and went to Oxford. Used to go on stage, he played with a group called the Legendary Toast Points. <laughs> I mean, who can take him seriously as a writer? I mean, he goes on stage in a gold lame bathrobe with a dunce cap on his head that looks like a piece of toast with a melting piece of butter on it. But he's a great musician, and Dave Barry used to play in a group in, in college called the Federal Duck. Uh, and I guess they were all pretty good, but everybody was drunk or stoned, so <laughs> nobody really knew. And the one who was the most, given the evidence, was probably the most talented was Mitch Albom, who uh, was one of those cocktail pianists who sits in a bar, you've all heard the Billy Joel song, he'd sit in a bar and tinkle away and there'd be like a fishbowl on top of the piano and some drunk would come up and say, play a melancholy baby or I'll break your fingers. <laughs> so we're gonna do that and uh, that's, that's next year. We, we've all had strange jobs before we started writing, and I worked, it's true, what Elizabeth said is true, I worked in a laundry, 
That was my first paying gig. Um, after I got out of college, I couldn't find a job teaching, so I took a job in a laundry. Um, my wife and I had two children, and uh, I was making, I think, a dollar sixty an hour, but after a year, I got bumped up to a dollar eighty. And every now and then, I got to drive the truck. <laughs> Saturdays, I got to drive the truck. And that was hot <laughs> believe me. So, um, but I got some great ideas at the laundry. There was a guy who was the foreman there named Harry, who didn't have hands. He had hooks instead of hands. And, uh, what had happened was there's a, a machine there that's called a speed uh, dryer, uh, ironer and folder. Uh, my mother also worked in a, in a laundry. Uh, she raised my brother and I. We were latchkey kids before latchkey kids were fashionable. And uh, uh, she knew about it and she called it by the name that everybody calls it by, which is The Mangler. And I ended up writing a short story <clears throat> called The Mangler. And during World War II, uh, when there weren't very many people working at the laundry, Harry fell into The Mangler. And his arms were pulled into the rollers, so he had these hooks and his, his arms were gone up to the, to the wrists, uh, to the elbows, and in the summertime, he used to go in the men's room and put one hook under the cold faucet and one under the hot faucet, and then he would come out and, and uh, put it on the uh, Mangler girls' necks. And these were, this was considered quite highly amusing in the days before uh, sexual harassment. <laughs> but, uh, we all had questions that we used to ask ourselves. One was that because he was management, Harry wore a white shirt and a tie, and the tie was always nicely knotted. And we wondered how he did that, but even more, we used to wonder about what happened when Harry went to the bathroom and how he performed certain necessary, well, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. I want to read to you from Lisey's story, which is the book that's out now. People ask me, they used to before they found out that there was no real answer to the question, where do I get my ideas? I used to have a snappy comeback to that. I used to tell them Utica. And God got me for that. My, my eldest child, Naomi, ended up as a Unitarian minister in Utica. So that was the end of the jokes about Utica. Usually ideas come from a number of different places. Uh, although with Cell, there was just one moment of inspiration. Sometimes that happens too. About six years ago, I was coming out of a hotel in New York and I saw this lady in her mid-50s. She's on a cell phone. Oh, she was nicely dressed. She had on like a power business suit. And 
the makeup was perfect and the hair was perfect and you know, she's waiting for the doorman to get the limo and she's yabbering away on this thing a mile a minute and I thought, what would happen if she got some message on that cell phone that she just absolutely could not deny and she ripped the doorman's throat out. And then she kind of went crazy and started to rip out everyone's throat all around her until they took her down. All right, lady, that's it. And I thought to myself, then, immediately on the heels of that, well, what if it happened to everybody at the same time that had a cell phone? If, the, if this thing was a pulse that affected all cell phones at once? And I thought, well, if people saw this happening to people that were on their cell phones, they wouldn't know, and the first thing they'd do is whip out their cell phones and <laughs> call somebody and say, Hey, do you know what? Uh... <laughs> and that was an idea. And as if that wasn't enough, I'm walking down Fifth Avenue or something, and I saw somebody who looked like a crazy person walking toward me. It was a guy, and he was wearing a business suit, and he was yelling and gesticulating with his hands the way that crazy people do in New York. There are a few in Portland, Seattle, places like that, but not as many per capita as in New York <laughs> because New York creates them somehow. It spawns them. And I'm thinking, I better get across the street because he looks like he's wrapped, but he's not wrapped. So I get ready to cross the street, and he gets a little bit closer to me, and I see he's got one of these headphone things on with a little mic in front of his mouth. It's the first one that I'd ever seen. And I said, he's crazy already. <laughs> it's happened to him. And so I thought, I've got to write this. There's just no question. This, this is just bound to happen. And the reason it didn't happen six or seven years ago, because, I mean, this was crying to be written. The same, write me. You need to write me because it's going to be great. I mean, it's going to be wonderful. But see, all I could think of was New York because I had the idea in New York. And so I wanted to be like, Escape from New York, like Snake Plissken in those John, John Carpenter movies, you know? And I thought, every New Yorker who, writes, who reads this book will be pissed off at me if I do this. He'll say, oh, they never would have taken the bridge, they would have taken the tunnel. They never would have taken 34th Street, they would have taken 3rd Avenue. What are you? Come on. That's New York. They're, they're, even the sane people are crazy. So I was just stuck on this idea that I can't write it in New York. And then I was doing a book a couple of years later, two or three years later, with a, a friend of mine named Stuart Onan. We did a book on the Red Sox called Faithful. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Uh, that was a good year. Maybe we'll get another one before I die. But we picked a lucky year to do it. Don't count on it, she says. Honey, but the Yankees, man, they paid a lot and they got a little, so. 
Anyway, um, we, I spent most of one summer in Boston, and I already knew the city pretty well, and I said, you damn fool, it doesn't have to be New York, it can be Boston, and then I wrote the book. But that doesn't have anything to do with that, I just told you that. <laughs> and the reason why? Because I could. <laughs> anyway, um, so ideas come from different places, and every now and then you get lucky and something just bursts over the horizon, boom, and there it is. But a lot of times they come in, in pieces, and with Lisi's story, um, they came in uh, uh, pieces. Uh, the, the big piece came later, and it was, I'd had pneumonia, and uh, I was in the hospital, and I caught a, uh, one of those hospital viruses, and uh, I lost a bunch of weight, couldn't keep anything down, and uh, my wife and I had been married a very, very long time, and uh, when she made sure, the doctors were sure, that I wasn't going to die, which was a question for a while, she said, well, you're not going to die, so while you're in the hospital, I'm going to redo your office. <laughs> and since I'd had a thoracotomy, which is a tube in the back, and I could hardly speak, all I could say was, oh, yeah, <laughs> like that. So when I got home, finally, and I felt hardly there. And uh, I really was hardly there. I was down to 150 pounds. And uh, I looked like a, a skeleton with a face on it. And because uh, whatever didn't come out the top went out somewhere else. <laughs> you don't want to know. But let's put it this way. I was glad I wasn't Harry from the laundry. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Yeah, anyway, oh man, man. Anyway, so I get home and my wife says to me, I wouldn't go in your office for a while. <laughs> and I said, oh, why not? And she said, it's disturbing. <laughs> well, disturbed me as my life. So, and I couldn't sleep very well, and, and one night around one in the morning, I went up there, and I went in, and it was disturbing because the books were off the shelves and uh, in cartons, and uh, the furniture had been taken out to get reupholstered, and um, the rugs were rolled up, and the place echoed, it's a wooden floor, and echoed under my heels. And I thought to myself, this is what this place is gonna look like when I'm dead. Uh, and I felt like a ghost in my own office. Um, and I, I knew and I know that that is what my office will look like when I'm dead, because none of us can avoid dying, and our survivors come into wherever we live, and they clean up what stop being our possessions and become 
are effects, like special effects. <laughs> special effects that no longer work. So they put them in boxes and out they go. So I got the second part of this idea. It connected with a smaller but vital part of this idea that I'd had for a long time. There's a writer named J.D. Salinger who wrote The Catcher in the Rye, and uh, he was sort of a cult figure in the late 1940s and early 50s, and uh, published a lot of stories uh, in The New Yorker. One of, one of his collections was called Raise High the Roof Beams Carpenters, still read. Catcher in the Rye is still read. These books list on the USA Today bestseller list. And he was very eccentric, so it was no surprise to me that he moved to New Hampshire <laughs> because New Hampshire is a place that was built for eccentrics. Um, I, I wrote a, a book uh, called The Dead Zone, and the villain was a guy, thank you, thank you, this one person down there who's actually <laughs> read that book. No, I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to milk applause. I, it's called The Dead Zone, and there's a character in there named uh, Greg Stilson, who shares some, he was sort of an early prototype of George Bush in some ways. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I want to make a politician who is smiling on the surface and is crazy underneath and has a kind of religious fixation and where will this guy, where could this guy possibly be elected? And immediately the answer was New Hampshire. <laughs> New Hampshire, which had the United States first in the nation uh, turnpike liquor store. <laughs> this is where you can drive in off the turnpike and buy tax-free liquor. Uh, it has, not too far from where we have our place, it has Santa's Village and Storyland right across from Six Gun City. <laughs> Six Gun City, where you can go in and, <clears throat> well, you know what you can do. You can shoot the damn place up after you give your wishes to Santa Claus. <laughs> so, there's that and, uh, you know, first in the nation lottery, that's another first for New Hampshire. Um, First in the nation, oh, still no seat belts. No, no seat belts in New Hampshire. No way for that. Anyway, uh, so J.D. Salinger moves to New Hampshire, and that's the last anybody hears of them, except there's this constant story. I don't know if it's an urban myth. Who knows? These stories grow, and probably they are, but... I like to believe all of them. I like to believe there are alligators in the New York sewers. I don't know about you. I like to believe this, this Bigfoot. Um, I like to believe George Bush and Donald Rumsfeld have a conscience, but <laughs> those things are probably urban myths. I don't know. Hey, that's my opinion. We welcome yours, as they say. 
Anyway, uh, J.D. Salinger moves to New Hampshire, falls silent, except the story is once a year, he rents a safety deposit box in the local town bank and comes in bearing a wrapped package of a suspicious size. It is eight and a half by 11. <laughs> this size. <laughs> and it's about this thick. So after about six safety deposit boxes and six deliveries to these over a period of about 15 or 16 years, the clerk with whom he does business says, Mr. Salinger, can I ask you a question? Yes, you can ask me a question. Are those novels you're putting in the safety deposit boxes? Yes, they are. She then asked him, are you going to publish them? And reputedly, J.D. Salinger said, what for? How do, you, how do you answer a question like that? I mean, it's Zen. It's like a Zen riddle. Why is a mouse when it runs? You know? So I thought about that for a long time. And then you hear other stories that may or may not be true. One of them I used uh, kind of used in, in Bag of Bones. Uh, There's a story about Danielle Steele uh, that, that every year she would publish two books and actually write three. I don't know why the hell she would do that, but supposedly she does, and if so, she must have like 23 of those little <laughs> piled up <laughs> right now. But anyway, it occurred to me that uh, it would be nice to put together the idea of a dead writer, his wife, and academics that started to circle around and want this guy's papers. Um, so the other thing that's going on here is Lisey Landon, his widow, two years after his death, They've been married 25 years, loved each other very much, never even looked at anybody else, never even thought of looking at anybody else. Two years after this happened, she starts to go through his papers in this office, and um, what it does is it reopens what she's stuffed away, uh, what she's never really gone through which is grief. And there are a number of different stages of, of grief. And uh, one of them is uh, rage. One of them is anger. And that's what this is about. Um, this actual background, but uh, I don't think that I need to give it to you. I broke. Lisi said in a small, frightened voice, and sealed the foil back over the fossilized slice of wedding cake. There was another, no other word for it. She broke. Her memory of it wasn't terribly clear, only that it started because she was thirsty. She went to get a glass of water in that stupid, smucking bar alcove. Stupid because Scott no longer used the booze, although his adventures with alcohol had lasted longer set by several years than a love, his love affair with cigarettes. And the water wouldn't come, 
Nothing came but the maddening sound of chugging pipes blowing up blasts of air. And she could have waited for the water. It would have come eventually. But instead, she turned off the faucets and went back to the doorway between the alcove and the so-called memory nook. And the overhead light was on, but it was the kind on a rheostat and dialed low. With the light like that, everything looked normal, everything the same. You almost expected him to open the door from the outside stairway, walk in, crank up the oldies, and start to write, just like he hadn't come unstrapped forever. And what had she expected to feel? Sadness? Nostalgia? Really? Something as polite, as dear, dear lady as nostalgia? If so, that was a real knee slapper because what had come over her then, both fever hot and freezing cold, was rage. What comes over her, practical Lisi, Lisi who always stays cool, except maybe on the day when she had to swing the silver spade, and even on that day she flatters herself that she did okay. Little Lisi who keeps her head when all those about her are losing theirs. What comes over her is a kind of seamless and bulging rage a divine fury that seems to push her mind aside and take control of her body. Yet, she doesn't know if this is a paradox or not. This fury also seems to clarify her thinking, must, because she finally understands. Two years is a long time, but the penny finally drops. She gets the picture. She sees the light. He has Kick the bucket, as the saying is. Do you like it? He has popped off. Do you love it? He is eating a dirt sandwich. It's a big one I caught from the pool where we all go down to drink and fish. And when you boil it down, what's left? Why, he has jilted her, done a runner, put an egg in his shoe and beat it. Hit the road, Jack took the midnight special out of town. He let out for the territories. He left the woman who loved him with every cell in her body and every brain in her not-so-smart head, and all she has is this shell. She breaks. Lisi breaks, and as she bolts forward into his stupid, smucking memory nook, she seems to hear him saying, so wheeze baby love, strap on whenever it seems appropriate. And then that is gone and she begins tearing his plaques and pictures and framed citations from the walls. She picks up the bust of Lovecraft, the World Fantasy Award judges gave him for Empty Devils, that hateful book, and throws it the length of the study, screaming, F you, Scott, F you. It's one of the few times she's used the word in its unvarnished form since the night he put his hand through the greenhouse, the night of the blood bull. She was angry with him then, but never in her life has she been so angry with him as she is now. If he were here, she might kill him all over again. She's on a full-bore rampage, tearing, 
all that useless crap off the walls until they are bare. Few of the things she throws down break on the floor because of the deep pile parquet, the carpet. Lucky for her, she'll think later on, when sanity returns. As she whirls around and around, a tornado now for sure, she screams his name again and again, screams Scott and Scott and Scott, crying for grief, crying for loss, crying for rage, crying for him to explain how he can leave her so, crying for him to come back, oh, to come back. Never mind everything the same. Nothing is the same without him. She hates him. She misses him. There's a hole in her, a wind even colder than the one that blew all the way down from Canada those years ago, now blows through her. The world is so empty and so loveless when there's no one in it to holler your name and holler you home. At the end, she seizes the monitor of the computer that sits in the memory nook, and something in her back gives a warning creak as she lifts it, but smuck her back. The bare walls mock her, and she is raging. She spins awkwardly with the monitor in her arms and heaves it against the wall. There is a hollow, shattering sound. Poom! it sounds like, and then silence again. No, there are crickets outside. Lisi collapses to the littered carpet, sobbing weakly, all in. And does she call him back somehow? Does she call him back into her life by the very force of her angry, delayed grief? Has he come back like water through a long, deserted, long, empty pipe? So that's, thank you. Is there anything you're too scared to write about? No. <laughs> when you received your medal at the National Book Awards in 2003, see, if I write about things, then I don't have to worry about them. You know what I mean? Uh, it's like, this is the best gig in the world, I can't tell you, because other people pay like 80 bucks an hour to go to a shrink, and it's not even a full hour, it's like a 50-minute hour. <laughs> I write these things down, and people pay me. <laughs> See, it's great, it's a good deal. It's wonderful. People say to me, do you have bad dreams? And the answer is yes. When I don't write, then I have bad dreams. If I'm working, 4-0, baby, 4-0. When you received your medal at the National Book Awards in 2003, you talked about building bridges between popular and literary fiction. Are you satisfied that those bridges are being built. No. Uh, the problem, I think, is that there's almost no understanding in the critical establishment, the serious critical establishment, and when I say that, I mean uh, in the journals, 
uh, everything from uh, Harold Bloom to uh, Plowshares to mm, pick, your, pick Your Poison, Antioch Review. Um, I read these things. Do the people who publish them read me? That's uh, a good question, and if they do, uh, a lot of them probably don't admit it, and <laughs> if their literary friends come, they might kind of like put it under the bed, sort of like uh, lit porn kind of thing. <laughs> um, it's kind of like, you, you people may have uh, faced this, uh, like uh, some friends will come over and say, oh, you read him, really? You read Stephen King? Oh, really? <laughs> Seriously? Oh. Well, all right. Okay. Guess we won't be coming here again. <laughs> no, I mean, um, I'm probably being overly sensitive about it, but not too. What I mean is there's a whole range of people who are doing really, really good work that we call popular fiction. First of all, it's an it's a artificial distinction between literary fiction and popular fiction. I sometimes think that literary fiction is a term that uh, writers and, and critics give to a certain kind of well-written fiction that doesn't sell very much. That, <laughs> that that's... That, that that's the criteria and uh, uh, a certain prejudice kicks in against you uh, if you do sell a lot of books and the prejudice works sort of like this. It's never stated outright, uh, but it would go something like this. If three million people are reading X, I don't really need to read X to know that that is a bad writer at work. <laughs> because all I do is divide three million by the average IQ and come up with a minus number, and I figure that's the IQ of the people reading that book, you know? And it's bull uh, There are people like Scott Turow, who's gonna be here, by the way, and you will come and bring a friend. Uh, <laughs> Scott Turow's in the band, and he's kind of a rarity. He can actually sing. Um, I'm thinking about uh, Michael Connolly, who is a terrific writer. George Pelicanos, who's, who's a, a, an amazing writer. Uh, there's Dennis Lehane, who's a terrific writer. And those are just a few. Um, a good example of what happens to a good writer uh, with literary aspirations is what's happened to Scott Smith, who wrote A Simple Plan and uh, a book called The Ruins that was out this past summer. Um, if you read the reviews that uh, uh, the critic in the New York Times wrote about those books, Michiko Kakutani, it isn't so much the reviews themselves. She hated the books, but then Michiko hates a lot of books. 
Yeah, the thing is, it's kind of a colossal misunderstanding about what those books are about and the tradition they come from, which is naturalistic fiction and uh, Theodore Dreiser and Thomas Hardy and going all the way back. So that I think the divide gets wider and it becomes more and more of a challenge for so-called, and more and more of a risk for literary writers, people who are taken as uh, literary writers to write popular accessible fiction to the masses so that you get a, somebody like Jonathan Safran Foer who is really a good writer when he lets his hair down to do it uh, but incredibly loud and, and incredibly close the, the book about the World Trade Center it is so literary that it's the first one uh, has some wonderful passages, so he's capable of that. Uh, another writer who's taken that risk and is, has been able to uh, deal with it is Michael Chabon. Michael Chabon, as far as I'm concerned, lives in both worlds as a literary writer and as a popular writer. So, But you're listening to a guy who's a little bit paranoid about that because I've had my burned a lot of times. Could you name a book or a story you wish you'd written? Yes, I wish I'd written Lord of the Flies, man. I love that. I love that book. You know how people ask uh, or, or people say, what's the first book that ever scared you? That was the first one that really scared me. It, it terrified me. So, And as far as stories, uh, I think that a lot of the early Ray Bradbury stories are the ones that, that made an impression. There's one about a, a little boy who's four years old and has a dog that brings him things back. Um, uh, while he's sick, he has rheumatic fever and he can't get out of bed. Uh, he, he brings back visitors a lot of times. And uh, he's in the fourth grade and he misses his class sorely and he loved his teacher, Miss Martin. And uh, he brings back classmates and the dog brings back the smell of the fall and the kid puts his face in the dog's fur and smells the leaves and, the, you know, just the frost and everything. And he says to the dog, I really wish that, that you would bring back Miss Martin. You know, I wish you'd bring back Miss Martin uh, to visit. And uh, the dog goes out and his mother comes in and says, I have something terrible to tell you. Miss Martin died. She's, she's died a few weeks ago. We haven't wanted to tell you, honey, but she died and she's been buried. And, and uh, of course, what happens is the dog comes back and this time when the, he's very, very tired and he's limping and this time when the little boy smells into his fur, he smells dirt and rot. And uh, pretty soon there's a shadow that falls across his bed and he looks up and the last line of the story is, Martin had company. <laughs> love it, love it. And you know, we laugh because we feel embarrassed about screaming at something like that, but 
This stuff is like a contact capsule, you know, it's time release. You'll think about it later. <laughs> when you're getting into your car. <laughs> In the dark. <clears throat> I, was, I never forgot that in, in the haunting of Hill House, the, the first one, the good one, the Robert Wise one, the black and white, the helpful housekeeper who keeps saying, no one lives any closer than town, no one will come any closer than that, so no one will hear you if you scream in the dark, in the night. Okay. What is my favorite book written by me? I love them all. <laughs> Actually, my favorite book is Lisey's Story, which is why I'm out here. I, it is, I love Lisey, but I, you know, I like, I like misery and uh, I like, um, well, it's okay, you can do that. I have a soft spot for The Dead Zone because I felt like it was the first real novel, you know, that had an arc, but there are a lot of, different ones that I sort of like. And I like Cujo because it was the first one that was all in, in one place. But I have this, such a reputation as being a horror writer. We have a place in Florida where we go in the wintertime, my wife and I, we didn't want to go, but once you get past a certain age, it's the law. <laughs> so we're down there and uh, my wife goes and she does the weekly shopping on Friday and if there's something else during the week, I go, which seems like a fair trade-off because I always get to go through the express lane. And uh, so I'm there one day and I'm going up the, the aisle that has pet food on one side and things on the other side, which is, you know, things. It's just like potato mashers and things that have Teflon on them, you know. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, things. The ones they sell on cable TV. So this woman comes the other way and she goes, I know who you are. The lady's about 80, she's got that orange hair, that orange hair thing going on. She says, I know who you are. You're that horror writer. You're Stephen King. I said, yes, guilty as charged. She says, I, I don't read what you do. I, I respect what you do, but I don't read it. Why, why don't you do something uplifting sometime like that Shawshank Redemption? <laughs> and, and uh, I go, I did write that. And they said, no, she said, no, you didn't. <laughs> it was surreal. It was like, what question have you never been asked? <laughs> what clothes have you never worn? <laughs> what person did you never meet? <laughs> okay, what books are on my nightstand? Uh, not too much right now because I'm traveling, but I have a... Uh, uh, a British novel, it's actually is by an American called China Lake, and uh, I brought something else to read that is so riveting that I can't remember what it is. <laughs> it's, uh, 
It's in my bag. It's a, it's a galley. What I've really been doing mostly are short stories this year. I've got to edit Best American Short Stories, so I've been caught in short story hell. <laughs> I've read about 400 of those suckers. They're the good, the bad, and the ugly. Do you find anything in Oregon scary? Well, actually, I have a history with Oregon because uh, when I, my daughter went to Reed for two years, and uh, when she transferred back to the University of Southern Maine, she had a car and she asked me if I would drive it back across the country. And I said that I would, and I came out here and I stayed at the Heathman Hotel. And I couldn't sleep, and in the course of that night, I thought, maybe I have insomnia. And that idea occurred to me. That was the kernel of that idea, and I kind of worked it out. And then, just a few days later, when I was driving through some little town in Nevada, um, there was nobody on the streets. I mean, that place was like entirely deserted, except there was a cop car parked in one of the slant parking spaces, and I saw the, the cop walking down the sidewalk, and uh, he was big guy, and I thought to myself, oh, I know where everybody is. That cop killed them all. <laughs> and that was the idea for desperation, so, man, if I get ideas like that every time I'm in Oregon, I, I just love this place. I just love this place. That was good. And you've been good. You've been a great audience. And uh, I really appreciate you having me here. And uh, take a look in the back of your car before you go home. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was Stephen King from a Literary Arts special event in 2006. This has been Literary Arts, the archive project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. And I'm the executive producer. Special thanks to Literary Arts Marketing staff Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.